Good morning, happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, very exciting week. Um, today is Monday, but tomorrow is Tuesday, which I'm very excited about because our good friend Josh Lindblom is pitching for the uh, Milwaukee Brewers. Um, so that's exciting. If anybody knows Josh, then you know he's a cool human. So he's got a great story. If you like to read about about so-called comebacks, he's not really a comeback. He just he went away for a little while and, and transformed himself into an amazing pitcher, MVP in Korea a couple of years, best pitcher in Korea for a couple of years, and now he is back and he's going to be pitching against the Pirates, which I believe is the last team he played for before he went back to Korea. Um, so again, very, very exciting week. It's going to be a great day. We've got an iFastU uh, Q&A call this afternoon. So if you're not signed up for iFastU, um, get on that. And then I'll see you on that, that call this afternoon. All right, Q&A for today is from Slasher. Um, Slasher, if that is your given name, I want to meet your parents. Um, they sound like really creative people. Um, anyway, Slasher has some confusion about the foot. And so since <laughs> the whole world is interested, at least in my world, everybody's interested about the foot right now. We've been talking about it for a week and a half. So let's let's just keep on it. Um, so he's got some questions and we'll, we'll knock those out, out for him here. We'll try to make it, uh, we'll try to relate it to some sporting activities as well, um, where, where it will be useful for understanding. Uh, so Slasher says, assuming mid-propulsion falls in this propulsion phase, would mid be an exhalation bias? And I would say absolutely it is. Um, so as we as we move through the, the phase of propulsion, we're going to be landing in, in an ER inhalation strategy. We have to move through this middle phase of propulsion where we're going to increase that, that IR gradient, exhalation bias gradient. And then as we leave and, and we go into this late propulsive phase, we're going to re-externally rotate and we're going to move towards that inhalation bias again. Now, Slasher continues. He said, I would think that late propulsion would be a max propulsion stage of gait, and then that would be biased towards an exhalation moment. But based on, on the way that the propulsion is presented, it's an ER orientation. Is this correct? Um, or is it uh, externally rotating from a state of internal rotating that gives me my late propulsion? Okay, so here's what we got to understand first and foremost, and I think this is the point of your, your uh, confusion, Slasher, is that the the implication that the late propulsion is max propulsion and that is not true. So what we want to do is we want to look at where maximum force is being produced. And so what we'll what we'll find is is that the maximum propulsion is going to occur as the calcaneus breaks from the ground. So so if I have my foot my representation of the foot. So I land in early, I've got a high arch, I'm ER'd, I got a plantar flexed first ray. And as I move the, the tibia over the foot through this middle phase, the, the belief is that that is going to be the late stage of propulsion. Now it's late in regards to how we designate the segmentation of, of propulsion, but it's not the highest force. The highest force actually comes right as I break the calcaneus from the ground, because this is the point where, from a traditional standpoint, maximum pronation actually occurs. So, so here's what we want to do. We want to think about this from an evolutionary standpoint, okay? So we were swimmers before we were walkers. And so our bias is towards inhalation to float, okay? 
and external rotation because we didn't have to produce force against a, against a, a fixed point, and so we used a lot of external rotation as swimmers. So just watch a frog swim, and you'll get the idea. When we come up on land and we have to deal with gravity, this is where we started to learn how to internally rotate and, and produce force. So the point of maximum internal rotation is actually the point of maximum force production. And this occurs at the very end of this middle propulsive phase where pronation, traditional pronation is, is at a maximum. Where else will we see this? Well, we're gonna see this in um, any rotational sport where we have to stop our turn to create some sort of some sort of uh, forward momentum into an implement. So if I'm throwing a baseball, if I'm swinging a golf club, if I'm swinging a tennis racket, um, all of these these sports will demonstrate the, the same element where I will have a maximum propulsion where I actually have to stop motion and I translate that into the implement and that is the point of max propulsion during those activities. So if we think about a baseball pitcher, it's when the lead leg that's stepping towards home plate hits its point of maximum propulsion as, as they're landing through, through the heel and because they never get towards this, this end propulsive phase except through follow through, which is actually an external rotation moment, which is actually a re-inhale, if you will, um, as, as they're following through. So again, maximum propulsion is not, not in this late phase of the propulsive um, continuum, um, regardless of what activity that we're talking about, whether we're talking about gait or whether we're talking about sport, it's, it's actually at the point of the maximum pronation. That is an IR'd strategy. That is an exhalation bias. So Slasher, I hope this helps you. I hope it helps all of you um, because it's gonna help you make some really good decisions in regards to how you're gonna rehab some of these people um, as well as exercise selection in the gym. Have a great Monday. I will see you guys tomorrow. Good luck, Josh. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Sun is out. I'm going to walk here in a little bit. Very excited about that. Um, and I mentioned this yesterday, but I'm going to mention it again today. Um, Josh Lindblom, Milwaukee Brewers, pitching today. So very excited about that. Good luck, Josh. Hope you do exceptionally well. I have no doubt in my mind that you will. Um, now, apparently, foot week continues. Um, but it's going to be like foot month at this point, I suppose. We're a couple weeks into this. Um, I do have a foot-related question, but it also involves cutting and change of direction and some curve sprinting and things like that. So so it, it's, it's an interesting uh, application of, of what we have been talking about in, in relation to the foot. Um, questions come from Justin. I know who Justin is, so I know what he's been doing. He's working with athletes, and he's got some cool stuff going on. So um, this will be, a, be, like I said, a, a fun question. He breaks it up into two pieces. He uh, Justin also asked if I can clarify the rear foot position in the max propulsive foot versus the late propulsive foot. Um, when we're talking about max propulsion, so we, we, we produce force best in internal rotation. And so when we think about the maximum force that we could produce, that would be the most IR position um, under most circumstances. So if we talk about throwing a baseball, when we release a baseball at maximum velocity, 
the, the hand would be at maximum pronation. And in fact, the whole body is going to be relatively pronated under those circumstances. So if you look at the ground contact on the foot, it's going to be, it's going to be maximally internally rotated and such. So right off the bat, when we can produce our maximum force, we're going to be at the point of maximum internal rotation. In the foot, that's going to be the maximum of, of what would be called traditional pronation. So again, if I get my little foot model out here, so where the maximum pronation occurs is actually just as the heel breaks from the ground. And this is this comes from some of the shoe research where they actually stuck bone markers in feet. So we it's fairly accurate as to as to when this this actually occurs. In the later stage of, of propulsion where the, the heel is much higher off the ground, we've got that the, the toes extended and we get that restoration. Let me turn it this way. We get that restoration of, of the arch where the foot is so-called resupinating. That's an ER position of the foot. Um, and that's going to be, there's less force produced there. So th I would equate that to, to, again, if we talk about throwing a baseball, maximum propulsion would be at the, the, the point that I release the ball. Everything after that is follow through, which is a re-external rotation of the body to create the, the appropriate deceleration. And, and that's where arm velocity can be, can be demonstrated. Um, so again, uh, hopefully that clarifies where this max propulsion actually is. It doesn't mean that we're always going to hit the optimum maximum propulsion. And so now we're going to talk about that in regards to some cutting and some, some curved running, if you will. So, so actually running on a curve, which you'll see wide receivers will, will do these, these kind of um, curved runs, or you're going to see it in track and field, obviously, when they have to run a 200 or a 400 meters where they're going to run on a curve. And under those circumstances, the inside foot of the curve and the outside foot of the curve are not doing the same thing, but we can relate it to other things that, that we do see in, in agility. So let me, let me go to Justin's second question here, where he says, I'm, I've been interested in the curve sprinting. Came, he came, came across some information. And what he says is they found a more lateral center of pressure uh, relative to the second ray at push-off. And he's talking about the inside foot of the curve. So if you're running a curve to the left, as you would in track and field, we're going to talk about the, the, the left foot under these circumstances. And they suggested that one of the limiting factors in curve sprinting performance um, is the inside leg, because it's been shown to be more affected um, by the curve than, than the outside leg. And he wants to know how this is going to affect um, the, the propulsive strategy on, under these circumstances. And are there any training considerations? Okay, so inside foot. We have a couple of considerations on the inside foot. Um, the ground contact time is going to be longer. The, the relative orientation of the rear foot. So they describe it as eversion in the literature and I'm going to call it the late propulsive foot because what we have is a lack of relative motion between the talus and the calcaneus and so we're going to see a lot of that type of an action on this on this inside foot. When they're talking about um, pushing off the, the lateral aspect, we're, we're gonna push off the, the uh, second, third, fourth, and fifth metatarsal relative to the, to the first and the second. So the outside foot's gonna push off of these two um, as they're running the curve. The inside of the foot's gonna push off of these two. Um, we have a stronger um, medial to lateral force through the foot on the inside foot because we have to maintain a centripetal force towards the center of the curve. Otherwise, we don't run a curve, we run in a straight line. Now, having said that, we don't actually run in curves 
anyway. Okay, humans run in straight lines. So you think about the fact that you've got a flight phase in running where you're actually not touching the ground, which means you cannot reorient yourself relative to the ground. So only during ground, ground contact do we have the ability to, to, to create the turns. So when my foot is on the ground, I have to create a centripetal force towards the center to, to maintain the curve. So again, the left foot has to behave a little bit differently than the right foot under those circumstances. But the cool thing is, because we don't run curves, all we're doing is performing repetitive cuts. So we can use some of the cutting research to help us understand what's going on when we're running these, these curved runs. Now we go back to two strategies, one plane. And you've probably heard me say that before. You follow any of this, this stuff that I do here on the Instagram or on YouTube. Um, we're gonna have two different approaches to how we run these curves or how we run a predictable cutting maneuver. Okay, so if, if we're in, a, in an environment that is predictable, like say running on a running track where you're running between the two white lines, or you're performing an agility drill where you know where you're going to be making the cut, there's gonna be two strategies that show up. There's gonna be one strategy where you have people that can actually reposition the pelvis and the hip over the foot before they make the cut. And so, Let's just say that they're narrow infrasternal angle people that can actually create a yielding strategy on this, the, the inside leg of the cut or the inside leg of the curve. So what they do is before they make their, their plant with the outside foot is they've already oriented the pelvis so that the, the left side hip, if we're, if we're running on a running track, the left side hip is positioned into internal rotation. So they have this capability to create the delay on the left side. It allows the, the right side to land in a little bit more of an early position of, of the of the foot, so an early propulsive foot on the outside foot, and then that allows them to make, to make the turn or the cut in a predictable environment. The other strategy is someone that cannot make this repositioning prior to the outside foot landing, and so they have to use a totally different strategy. So they use a more of a rear foot contact which is actually a later stage of, of propulsion, and then they use the hip musculature to make the turn. This is a lot less efficient, it's much more energy intensive, but again, it's gonna be a structural thing or a behavioral thing that's gonna, gonna result in one of these two strategies because on the first strategy where I have the person that can reposition themselves as they go into the cut or into the curve, they have this capability. It is gonna, it's gonna turn out to be a structural or a trained capability where you have more internal rotation on the inside leg. And whereas, again, the people that don't turn as well, they're gonna to tend to be your wider ISAs. They're gonna to tend to be more of your mutated people. They're gonna to have to rely on the plant from the outside foot and then make the hip turn there. So right away, you can start to see where these strategies for training may lie. So if I can improve someone's capability to capture internal rotation on this inside leg, I may actually improve their ability to make these cuts or these curve runs more efficiently. But keep in mind that you're gonna run into some limitations with structure. So for my, say an offensive lineman per se, his ability to make this anticipatory orientation into the cut is gonna be lesser so than my wide receivers, but their physical structures are also different. So this is why wide receivers look a certain way and offensive linemen look a certain way because again, their body types put them in those positions and make them more ideal for those situations. 
So Justin, I hope this gives you a couple of ideas about how to address these things and it helps you represent the differences. But always keep in mind, it's like when I'm doing a curve run, all it is is a series of cuts. So if I can understand how the cutting works, then I understand how the curve runs work. Um, so again, two strategies, one plane. Have a great Tuesday. I'll see you guys tomorrow. So happy Wednesday. Um, we had a situation that came up that I thought would be really interesting to, to throw up here as today's video. Um, since I didn't have time to, to do a Q&A this morning, we'll just kind of build this out. So uh, we had a pelvic orientation that was really interesting to, to demonstrate. And so we're gonna take you through that so you can see uh, something that's underappreciated, which is how much movement actually occurs underneath one of your, your, your true measurements that, that you see as being in this single plane but underneath it, we've got a whole change in orientation change uh, of the pelvis. So we had somebody that came in with some, some pretty remarkable uh, external rotation deficit of about 20, 25 degrees on, on the right with a, an apparently look, normal looking 60 degrees on the left. And so that puts us at this really hard oblique kind of a, of a position where the right side actually sits a little bit more forward than, than the left side. So, so the, the pelvis is tipped forward and then it's up on an oblique axis, right? Now, as you, and he had a lot of internal rotation on the left side as well, right? And so now, if he's, if he's on the table though, and I tip him up on this, on this oblique axis, and you take him through the hip flexion, what's gonna happen is he's actually gonna roll on the, on the oblique axis and so what he ends up with is what was it, 130 degrees of hip flexion on, on one side and then only 90 mm -hmm. on, on the other. And so the, the thing that we have to recognize is that we get this oblique shift of the pelvis as you're moving through the range of motion. And it's very, very difficult to see, but the, the leg can cause this weight shift um, through the pelvis as you're moving through the range of motion. So you know, it's one of those reasons why you might get like a, like a crazy straight leg raise where the pelvis actually rolls away from the from yeah. the straight leg raise. It's the same kind of thing that we that we saw here with the hip flexion. So it's just something that has to be appreciated um, in regards to when you're taking your measurements on the table. So this will happen with shoulder range of motion. This will happen with hip range of motion um, in any number of different ways. Um, some of the other things that you might see is if you have somebody in sideline and you're doing hip abduction, adduction measures, you'll see all kinds of orientations in, in three dimensions as well. You have to be able to appreciate those measures or, or those adjustments as part of your, your measurement because some of them are not true. So maybe you're adducting or abducting out of plane, if you will, and you're getting a rotation or a reorientation of the pelvis that skews your measurement. Yeah. So again, it's just a really important thing for people to recognize and appreciate that there's a lot of movement going on underneath your measures. So hopefully that's useful to you. Um, I will see you guys tomorrow. Coaches and Coffee conference call uh, tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Join us. Happy Thursday. This is the Coffee and Coaches conference call. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and It is perfect. Okay. Curious about your thoughts on it. Sure. Speed breeds efficiency.
speed breeds efficiency. Yes. Okay. What, what, and what, this is in reference to what? Uh, pitching mechanics and arm speed. I, mean, I understand what they're, they're probably trying to get at, you know? I do, but I, knowing what I know now, I, I'm having a hard time accepting that. Well, I, I, I think that, I think, let's reverse it. I think that would be a much more profound statement is that efficiency breeds speed. That's exactly. I, I don't think it goes the other way. I don't think that doing something faster necessarily produces the, the, you know, desired outcome. I think that, that if you, when, when you think about just the <clears throat> sequence of events that has to occur to produce a, a major league fastball, I, if, if there's not an element of efficiency in that, I don't know how, I don't know how it even remotely occurs um, in, in some form of uh, control. I agree yeah. 100%. I was just thinking about like the importance of sleep. We definitely talk about the importance of sleep for athletes and people who are on weight loss, but have you experienced patients or clients recovering in rehab to do better with sleep or less sleep or is that something you even talk to about? So it, so it, it comes up every once in a while. Um, it, have, <laughs> this sounds like such a cheesy statement. Have you read my book? Um, <laughs> so a whole section on, in my book about this. Um, I, I'm not a sleep expert, so I tend to not get too deep about it. But it, like I said, it does come up on occasion. Um, I'm more about the, the execution of the things that I have to have them do in the acute, you know, uh, element within within the appointment as being my priority. Um, but obviously, it's important um, just from a stress response standpoint. Actually, had, I, I had somebody come in yesterday. We we did mention it, and so we'll talk about it a little bit, you know, from a recovery standpoint with our athletes and such that that might be dealing with some stuff. Every time I do a mentorship call, I talk about it at like every call um, because I want everybody that when you're trying to be productive, um, energy is everything, right? And so sleep is, is sort of like this foundational thing that if you don't get enough, then, then everything gets worse. And I, I think that you just try to get the big rocks under most circumstances. Right. right? It's like make sure that people hit like a a sleep time, wake time kind of thing is probably one of the biggest, just the regularity of sleep. So if anything, I might emphasize that. No, but we do talk about, you know, the importance of sleep, especially with the group of people who are losing weight. Like that's one of the big rocks we focus on, yeah. especially if they're feeling frustrated that they're not losing weight and we kind of like look back at their stress management and kind of go into like how are they sleeping are they enough sleep but i just didn't know if you're seeing people who who are like are in pain and if they're getting adequate sleep do they actually go through you a little bit faster than people who are going to gain less sleep and like how do i guess so how would sleep impact your side of the spectrum 
Well, so, so here's how it impacts everything. So when, and we can talk about your context as well. So think about the, the behaviors that you're trying to influence. Like you're trying to get people to actually change the way that they behave, right? And, and so that requires a little bit of, of output from your brain because you're making decisions all day long, right? So if you put, if you put a piece of uh, chocolate chip cheesecake down in front of somebody that's, that's restricting their, their food intake, right? That takes energy to say, I'm not going to eat that, right? And so the foundation then, you know, is do I even have the energy to make that decision? Because every decision that you make during the day, even the smallest ones, requires energy. And, and the, have you heard about think concepts like decision fatigue and things like that? Yeah. Like, uh, is, it, is it David Rock, I think, has the book, uh, your, brain, your Brain at Work or something like that? Mm -hmm. or he talks about that that type of a concept it's like so so you got to appreciate that and so if they're starting from a deficit if you're trying to if you're trying to lose weight and you don't have like some other um factor that's going to influence your behavior favorably right you know towards the goal um you're gonna be in trouble so so i i, I think you know from your standpoint obviously it's very very impactful it is impactful from my standpoint because because pain is a decision. It's just a decision that they don't make consciously, right? And so it, it, if, they are, if they are defensive, so, so a lot of people will come to me and, and their, their um, physical behavior, their motor output is a defensive um, behavior. And if, again, if they don't have enough energy, then they're going to default to the easiest thing, which is you know, um, the negative, everybody defaults towards the negative. It's, it's one of our little protective elements that we're, we're born with, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if you're dealing with a painful situation and I don't have enough energy and I default to the closest thing, yeah, they're going to they're gonna feel crappier. Because um, I know you talk about uh, baseball uh pitching and stuff because i know throwing pitching mechanics uh there's definitely some similarities there with uh with serves so i guess i was just curious um if that's something you work with um ever frequently and kind of how that relates i don't know if i've seen um, a tennis player well i have one that she's she's a little bit older but but i mean i've, I've seen my fair share if you will um and th again th while there's some obvious differences the the strategies are the same whether we're talking i mean anytime that you're you're producing force into an implement and especially the fact that we just use our ability to turn to produce that force there's going to be similarities right mm. as far as how that force is produced and and when that force is produced right and so you know anytime you have an, an implement like a tennis racket or a golf club, the the mechanics will be will be a little bit different, but the concepts will be the same, right? As to how we like, you know, the and and again, it's very very deceptive as to what people think is happening versus what actually happens because we see the visual, right? Where everybody sees the 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 velocity, right? When you see a racket, um, the, the the that's not when you see the racket moving quickly. It's like, that's not where the maximum force is. The maximum force took place right before that, that allowed that racket to move quickly, 
Mm -hmm. Again, that this makes it very deceptive as to how you need to train this person to produce those forces. So I think there's a little bit of confusion there. Could you go over the iterations in the pelvis? So you said, for instance, the first one was the compression in the, I think the dorsorostral area, typically, to push their center of gravity forward? Correct. Would the iteration for that in the pelvis be above the trochanter? Yeah, so can, let me just grab the pelvis. How about that? So if you think about, about a, a wide presentation where they're going to be, they're going to be mutated, right? And so I get this posterior lower expansion, right? Okay. Um, which means that I'm going to get shoved in that direction, right? You look at the pelvic axis, so as the as the, the gut volume would come down and it goes that way, right? It's gonna make me go, like, so it's gonna tilt me like that and then I wanna pro propel forward, right? And so, I'm sorry, it's gonna push me backwards and this is gonna push me forward, right? So this would be the equivalent to my dorsal rostrum. So that will typically give you the, like an anterior orientation of the pelvis? Right. So, so again, so this is, this is me going backwards, right? This would be like um, what, what most folks would call a hinge, right? If I exaggerate that. And so again, I don't want to fall backwards. So I need something to push me forward. And so I have to do that. Gotcha. Yeah. And then the sequence basically looks the same, right? So if I have something that's, that's pushing me forward, eventually I'm going to need something that pushes me back. So what would that be? The first one would be like adductor longus and brevis? Yeah, right there. Okay. They attach right there. Yeah, and they would push this back. And again, it's like it, the, the naming of these things is what creates a lot of the confusion. Because, because if, I, if I tell you that, that glute max is, is one muscle, you immediately create this, this representation in your head of how it should behave. If I told you that actually glute max is five different muscles instead of being one, now you gotta figure out like, okay, wait a minute, if it's five muscles, then how does it behave differently, yeah. right? And that's the perspective that you have to have when you're looking at the anatomy, because again, the, the, the guys that, that did the first dissections got to name all this stuff. And so it was their perspective that we are unfortunately still using, which creates a lot of confusion for us as far as, far as how things do behave. Because people look at glute max as a single muscle. It's not, it's many muscles, right? External oblique, you now know, is more than one muscle, right? And, but again, so this, this is literally how things move. So, when I'm, when I'm superficial and expanded, I can move really fast in one direction, and then I have to create this compressive strategy. So we, we have an expansive strategy and compressive strategy, and the compressive strategy reverses gears and turns it in the other direction. If you take a step forward and you land on your right foot, same thing is happening. As you position your leg, the volume is spiraling around the outside. As you land and you have to push, it spirals up and in through the, the, the middle of the leg as you propel. So this is the difference between 
um, when you're walking, the difference between when your foot's off the ground and when your foot's on the ground. When your foot's off the ground, it's expansive and, and this, this superficial volume is circulating around the extremity as you land and everything has to squeeze and compress. Now you're twisting that towel tighter because you have, you have the storage of energy and it goes up and through the inside. Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, it's the end of the week, had a great week. I got some messages from some of the extended family this morning, so I'm in a really good mood about that. Um, I'm gonna pull a Q&A off of IFAST University that, that came through that I thought would be very, very useful for many people because um, it covers some of the basic things that we talk about, but it also throws a little element of complexity um, at the end. So this comes from Dr. Sandy, and she's got a series of, of questions here, and we'll kind of knock them out um, as we go here. So Dr. Sandy says, in the perfect human being, abbreviated PHB, perfect human being. I'm going to steal that one, Sandy. Thank you. Uh, standing in the same spot and breathing is counter-nutation and nutation of the sacrum simultaneous and synchronized with the movement of the sternum to maintain a fixed spatial relationship or are the movements of the sacrum independent and adapting to the consequences of, of thoracic movement? So, one, we're not going to be able to separate any of this, this stuff, but if we're talking about the PHB, the perfect human being, um, standing and, and breathing. Uh, we have an expansion that occurs during inhalation and we have a compression that would occur during exhalation. And so if we're looking at the movement of the sacrum as we breathe in, we're going to get a counter-nutation of the sacrum and, and the axial skeleton itself is going to, to expand throughout. I would, I would prefer that we talked about analogous structures when we're talking about um, the, the synchronization of movement. So for instance, if we're talking about the sacral movement, moving in the counter nutation, we're going to talk about the dorsal rostral area expanding as well because they are analogous um, as far as their, their behaviors are concerned. Um, and then obviously as we exhale, we get nutation of the sacrum, we're going to get compression of dorsal rostral. Now, that doesn't mean that the sternum's not moving through its pump handle action, so to speak, as we, as we breathe in and out, which typically under normal circumstances would be synchronized with the expansion and compression. So technically speaking, yes, we, we would have this synchronized movement of the, of the sternum and the sacrum. But again, I want to draw your attention to analogous structures because that helps us when we're trying to model movement um, associated with compression and expansion. Looking at these analogous structures is a little bit more effective for us in determining the, the reasons as to why we may see certain presentations, certain strategies that are influencing movement. So again, let me just direct your attention to that. Uh, secondly, similarly, this is also from Dr. Sandy, in the PHB, ah, love that. In the PHB, standing still and inhaling is the descent of the pelvic diaphragm simultaneous and synchronized with the descent of the thoracic diaphragm to maintain a fixed spatial relationship, or is the depth of descent in response to changing gut pressures? So I, I think you're, you're sort of making a reference to, to the same thing here. So if we think about, we take a breath in, the, the thoracic diaphragm has to descend and we have a fixed compartment of, of fluid in the gut, um, it's gotta go somewhere. Um, and so, in a, again, in a perfect world, we would see this synchronous movement of, of the, the thoracic diaphragm descending and then the pelvic outlet 
um, also descending at the same time again because we have this fixed volume of incompressible fluid now there's certain obviously compensatory strategies that could be taking place that would influence that but we're not talking about compensatory strategies at this point um, sandy goes on to say that if we held the same phb upside down but the ankles are placed on all fours with the pelvic diaphragm descend at the same level as when standing during inhalation or adapt accordingly to the changes in gut pressure. And so, so this is going to be an adapt accordingly question. So this is exactly why we use different body positions and orientations to gravity as, as we're trying to influence the, the motor output strategies that we would see or to reacquire ranges of motion because what we can do by orienting the body, we can change the shape of the axial skeleton very easily. We can alter the influence of gravity that, that makes reacquiring movement um, much more easy um, because we can reduce the, the demands on, on the motor output and reduce these compensatory strategies that actually interfere uh, with, with movement. So this would be one of those things why when we talk about inversion, for instance, where we put a, a narrow and a prone inversion, we will put a wide and a supine inversion because of the, of the shape of the, the descending thoracic diaphragm and then the resultant uh, uh, pelvic outlet shape. And so we have a better shot at influencing those in, in those situations. Um, we would take a wide and we would put them on their side because just laying, laying someone on their side increases the anterior-posterior expansion capability. So, uh, for instance, if you're in the gym and you're trying to decide, oh, do I need to do a prone plank or, or a, like a side plank, um, you might make the decision to put your narrows in prone and your wides in, in a side plank simply because you get a much better shape change if your goal, if your goal is to restore, restore movement. Um, that's to alleviate compensatory strategies. Now, having said all of that, there will come a point in time where everybody will use a compensatory strategy. So we see this in high levels of performance. So under situations of high force or high speed, eventually you're going to hit a threshold where you're going to have to use a compensatory strategy where we're going to reduce the relative motion between movement segments, where we're going to use superficial strategies because to move quickly, forcefully, um, we're going to have to use this external musculature. That's why it's there. Now the question becomes is, do I want to carry around those, those movement strategies all the time? And that tends to be why people come to see people like me and where they have a, a movement related problem that they can't solve, or they might have some pain related issues associated with using these compensatory strategies in, in a lower intensity context. So I hope that answers your questions. Um, if it doesn't, please ask another question at askbillhartman at gmail.com or throw a question up here on, on the Instagram or YouTube if you're wherever you're watching this. Have a great Friday. Have a great weekend. And I will see you next week.